Thank you. Thank you. Ah, <laughs> uh, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Now, go Bears. Go Bears. They are killing me right now. We'll have to talk later, Julius, but... Okay, you guys, I have a big birthday coming up. This Saturday, I turn 40. Yeah, right? I don't look it, right? No, no, my kids, my kids, my daughter was sitting on my lap this week facing me, touching my hair, and she was like, Mom, you're looking old. <laughs> I was like, thanks. I left the house feeling really good about myself. Now, when, when I was your age and younger, when a birthday would come, I found that I was always thinking about the future, what was coming next. But the older I get, the more when a birthday comes, I find that I reflect on the past. Soren Kierkegaard said, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. Everyone's life is a story. <clears throat> God does not give us the next chapter in advance as if we're editors of that story, that would be nice, but instead we read our story backwards, finding meaning in everything that's happened. So would you, if you would allow me, and it's my birthday so I can do whatever I want, but um, I'm gonna just reflect with you a little bit before we get to a text. We are gonna get, we're gonna get in the text this morning. But for those of you that have had me in class, you know a little bit of my story. I haven't always known and loved Jesus. I remember hearing the name of Jesus, sort of, but I had no concept for who he was or why he was significant. Now, I was a, I was a good kid. I was sort of a goody-goody. I was a rule follower. My husband, I still am. My husband makes fun of me for this. I got good grades, but I was just, I was just sort of an average kid. There was nothing really, I was never really like excellent or anything really that bad. I was just sort of there. I was average. And to be honest, I felt empty inside most of the time. I felt anonymous. I felt nameless, unknown. I often felt like people were just indifferent towards me. No bad feelings or good feelings. I was just, I was just there. I was forgotten. My loneliness and sadness really, really hit ahead when I was in junior high. I got so depressed in eighth grade that I remember staying home from, from school for a week. My depression got so bad that I felt it physically. Some of you know what I'm talking about. I even struggled with basic human functions. I had to concentrate to breathe properly. I remember laying awake at night feeling so afraid of dying, I was convinced that if I fell asleep, I may not wake up. I thought I was gonna die. In the words of Augustine, I was scared of dying, but tired of living. And later on in high school, a couple years later, I somehow just snapped out of that depression. I just felt like I had to buck up and go on with life. But a couple years later, I was invited to an Assemblies of God church, and I was introduced to Jesus. I heard all of these messages about who he was and what he did, and I remember going home and I opened up the Bible and I started reading the Gospels on my own, and the words 
and actions of Jesus brought me to tears. I don't know if you've ever been around somebody who has these piercing eyes, almost this prophetic expression where they look at you and they can read your mail, like see the depths of you. I don't know if you, it's kind of freaky when you're around somebody like that. That was my experience with Jesus on those pages. He moved from pages to a person. When I, I was reading the Gospels and I was reading stories like a woman with an issue of bleeding simply touches his cloak and it stops Jesus dead in his tracks, She's trembling as she approaches him to explain why she touched him, and he looks at her and says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. That's the only time he ever uses this affectionate name, daughter. And then there's another time where he walks by a woman who is crippled with an evil spirit for 18 years, and he sees her. Nobody else saw this woman. They went out of their way to ignore this woman. Jesus sees her, puts his hands on her, and sets her free. The way that he saw her, I felt him seeing me. I felt known for the first time. His piercing eyes just touched to the deepest part of me. Jesus had helped me to take my eyes off myself because I don't want to pretend that I stopped feeling sad or lonely. No, he did not take away my humanity. I still feel sad sometimes, but he helped me to take my eyes off myself. My gaze was fixed on Jesus, someone greater than myself. And even to this day, when I open my Bible, I am drawn to the Gospels. I cannot take my eyes off of him. And he invites me to continue to respond to him even today. And I never want to let that love run cold. So today, we're simply going to talk about Jesus, our first love. We're gonna take a look at my favorite passage um, about Jesus, because again, it's my birthday, I can do whatever I want, and this is the passage I wanna go through. Now, I don't know if you have like a life verse or a life passage that you continue to go back to and God speaks to you. For me, this is it. It's the story, it's the moment when Jesus announces himself as the one who put everything right again the one who would usher in the age of redemption, when he announces himself as the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, the King. So if you would look in your Bibles to Luke chapter four. Now, while you're looking for it, I'm just gonna set the stage a little bit and give you some detail. Now, for those of you that have had New Testament, you know Luke was a doctor and he was a Gentile and he was a careful investigator. So he has a detailed gospel here. We always think of Paul as the one that has the most words in the New Testament. Nope, it was not Paul, it was Luke. And in chapters one and two of the Gospel of Luke, he gives details of the miraculous birth of Jesus from Mary's perspective. And in the first chapter, I just wanna note that Luke points out that Jesus was born in the days of Caesar Augustus. He places him in in Roman history. And when Caesar Augustus became emperor, 
This initiated a period that we call the Pax Romana, which is Latin for the Roman peace. Now this didn't mean that there were no wars. It meant social and cultural prosperity of one group, the rich and elite Romans. But it brought oppression to the lower in status. And after this, after Jesus is born, a prophet, Simeon, holds Jesus in his arms and prophesies this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and be a sign that will be spoken against. We also have a unique story of Jesus as a boy in the temple sitting and listening to the teachers and everyone is amazed at his answers and his understanding. And in Luke 3, we have the baptism of Jesus. He's a grown man now, and the Holy Spirit descends on him, this Holy Spirit huge theme in the Gospel of Luke. And then we have the voice of the Father saying, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And then in the beginning of Luke 4, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, goes into the wilderness for 40 days where he resists three temptations by Satan. So Jesus, his preparation has been accomplished. And now we arrive at the passage I wanna go over with you today. Now, Greg and I have two kids, as he mentioned, Evangelina's seven and Jacob is five. And one thing we like to do is read books together as a family. And what I love that my kids do, as soon as we open a book, they look at the pictures on the pages and they immediately say, oh, I'm him, I'm her. They identify with somebody in the story. And I think this is such an awesome practice, so I want to invite you to do that with me today. Put yourselves in this story. And as we do, we'll find ourselves in Nazareth in a local synagogue. Now, I have a picture of uh, Nazareth. Is it there? Yep, there we go. This isn't the city of Nazareth. This is, the, this is Lower Galilee, where Nazareth was. This, is where, this was Jesus' hometown. It was about 1,600 to 2,000 people. How many of you are from a small town? You know what this is like then, right? You know, I mean, I'm not saying that an American small town is the same as a first century Galilean small town, but some things in human history never change. A small town is a small town. But you can see that this is a hill country with lots of limestone hills and cliffs nearby. And then I have another picture of a synagogue. This is the ruins of a synagogue in the fourth or fifth century, so you can picture it. Now, Jews in the first century, they regularly went to the local synagogue on the Sabbath, which was a Saturday. And much like our church services today, there was a typical pattern or a liturgy to their worship services. There's six elements. They had a thanksgiving or a blessing at first in connection with the Shema. Shema's Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And then there was a prayer with an amen response from the people. Then there were two readings, and the person reading would stand up to read. They would read from the Torah, which is the first five books of your Bible. They'd read it in Hebrew, and it was translated to Aramaic, the local language. Then there was a reading from the uh, the prophets, like Isaiah, or Ezekiel, or Daniel, or Jeremiah. And then there was a sermon, or a word of exhortation, and the teacher sat down to teach. Teachers often sat down, which makes sense of the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew 5 through 7. Jesus sits to teach the people. And then lastly, there's a benediction pronounced by a priest with an amen response from the people. So, I've set the stage. You are a Jew in Nazareth, 
sitting in the local synagogue. Now let's read our passage, Luke chapter four, starting in verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard you do in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of a hill in which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This story fascinates me. I am mesmerized by Jesus here. Now Luke, inspired by the Spirit, places this at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Galilee because it is a concrete representation of his ministry and it's the front piece for the whole rest of the gospel. Now I want, I'm gonna walk through this passage and there's a lot that I could point out but I just wanna point out some things that I love about Jesus here and then what we are called to do with this passage today. Now, I see an overall pattern here of Jesus' response, Jesus' sermon and a crowd's response, Jesus' sermon and a crowd's response. So we're gonna like, see how this works. In verses 14 and 15, we see that Jesus was gaining popularity throughout Galilee, that he's empowered by the Spirit and people are amazed at his teaching. We don't know how much time has gone by here. As detailed as Luke is, he doesn't tell us how much time has gone by. But when, in verse 16, we see that he comes to his hometown in Nazareth. And every synagogue had a ruler who was in charge of the liturgy. The ruler, whoever, whoever he considered worthy, he could invite and have that person stand up to read. And we know that it was his regular practice, it was his custom to go to the synagogue. So Jesus stood up to read and the scroll of the, pro of the prophet Isaiah is handed to him. Now we don't know if, if Jesus picked it beforehand or if it was just the set liturgy of that time, but we do know that Jesus unrolled that scroll and he found the place that he wanted to read. 
And when he does, he reads from what we now call Isaiah 61. Now chapters and chapter numbers and verses weren't around until the 16th century, so he unrolls the scroll. But for simplicity's sake, we're just gonna say that he reads from Isaiah 61. But what's interesting is that he makes a couple changes of Isaiah 61. He reads, and we'll see that he says, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But in Isaiah 61, that's the middle of a sentence. He seems to stop in the middle of a sentence. The rest of it says, and the day of vengeance of our God. But he does not, he doesn't wanna talk about judgment yet. And then the rest of Isaiah 61 is actually about judgment on the Gentiles. But we're gonna find out in his second sermon why he doesn't talk about that. But let's just walk through this. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. In the Old Testament, kings were anointed with oil, like Samuel anointing the first king of Israel, Saul in 1 Samuel 10. But Jesus is anointed with the spirit. Jesus is a new kind of king. And he has been sent to proclaim good news to the poor. The object of the good news is the poor. The poor in Luke's gospel are economically poor and also those who are lower in status in this honor-shame society. The poor are those who are outside the boundaries of God's people. Children, barren women, widows, Gentiles, tax collectors, sinners, demon-possessed, those with physical deformities and diseases. The good news is for these people. Just as Caesar Augustus brought the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, to the Roman rich and elite, Jesus brought the Pax Christi, the peace of Christ for the poor. Jesus lifts up those who have been brought down. And next, he says that he has been sent to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, the captives, to bring release for those who are in exile, in sin, and spiritual captivity. And recovery of sight to the blind. In Luke's gospel, the blind are those who are physically without sight and spiritually without sight. Next, what's interesting to me is that Jesus says to set the oppressed free. But this is not in Isaiah 61. Jesus takes this from Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58 is about fasting. It contains a prophetic rebuke of the nation of Israel for their hypocrisy and the way they fast. I wanna read just a little bit because I think it's awesome. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is, not, is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? This is the fast God has chosen. And the people of Israel were not exhibiting justice towards those in need. Jesus had come to save the entire person, body and soul, to release captives, to set the oppressed free. 
Next it reads that he has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is from Leviticus 25, the year of Jubilee, the Sabbath year. Every 50 years, Israel was to proclaim liberty throughout the land to all of its inhabitants. The trumpet would sound and they proclaim this release. In the year of Jubilee, they were to set their slaves free and forgive all debts. This is the year of the Lord's favor. It wasn't, it wasn't a specific year described, it signified the era of salvation, the messianic age of release. Freedom for the oppressed, the captive, and the poor. When Jesus was finished reading this first sermon, he rolls up the scroll and gives it back to the attendant, and the atmosphere in the synagogue is charged with curiosity. Everyone is wondering what their townsman, the former carpenter, is going to say to explain the scripture. All is quiet. Every eye is fixed on him. Was he going to talk about the golden days of old when Yahweh stretched out his hand and did miraculous deeds? Or was he going to talk about the bright promises, the golden age of the future? But Jesus sits down, taking the position of a teacher. He opens his mouth and talks about the present. He says, today, This is happening right now. The release from oppression and enslavement, the good news for the poor, is beginning right here, right now, with me. The future hope of Israel is now a present reality. Jesus is the spirit-anointed agent through whom all forms of oppression would be lifted. In theology, we talk about the kingdom of God is now and it is not yet. Jesus here is inaugurating the kingdom and we will see it fully come at his second coming. What strikes me here about Jesus, I remember when I first read this passage, Jesus fully understood his vocation. He absolutely knew who he was and what he was called to do. He spoke with such authority. Jesus is the anointed king bringing the kingdom. But those around him only saw him as a man. And next we get to their first response. It says all spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words. Now that's what the NIV says and the ESV says that, the NRSV says that. But the Greek literally says they were all bearing witness to him and were astonished at his gracious words. I don't think this this was actually positive. I don't think that the NIV and the ESV get it right. You know, what's interesting is that the message paraphrase gets it right. It says all who were there watching and listening were surprised at how well he spoke. But they also said, isn't this Joseph's son? They're they're seeing his rhetorical skill. They're seeing his gracious words. But they also knew him growing up. They probably are thinking, didn't I see you build a shed with your dad? You know, you're you're a woodworker. What, how can this be true? Jesus was so fully human that they were astonished at what they're hearing. But another thing strikes me about Jesus He is all-knowing, and he knows exactly what is in their hearts. Just as I 
know Jesus, to be one who sees, sees straight to the very depths of who I am, Jesus knows what they're thinking, and it's not good. Next we get to Jesus' second sermon where he says, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Now this isn't a, a quote that you'll find in the Old Testament. This is a proverb that's Aramaic. It's like a common expression of that, de- of that day. But the point is clear. They are dema- demanding a sign. They're demanding a sign for what they heard from him in Capernaum. And Jesus, knowing all things, sings straight to their heart and perceives their unbelief. He says, truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. The tradition of Israel rejecting their own prophets was strong in Judaism. If you wanna hear all about it, Stephen gives a speech on it in Acts 7. He'll tell you all about how Israel has rejected the prophets. And here Jesus gives two examples of two major sign prophets in the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha. Elijah was not sent to the widows of Israel. No, he was sent to one widow who was a non-Jew. And then Elisha, he could have been sent to all of these uh, lepers in Israel, but he wasn't. God sent him to Naaman, a non-Jew. So the main point is clear. Non-Jews were the ones to accept the two major sign prophets of the Old Testament. And now Jesus is saying, Nazareth will not receive him, but non-Jews will, Gentiles. Now those in the synagogue expected Jesus to favor his hometown. Shouldn't they be the first in line? Isn't Nazareth a poor village needing relief from oppression from Rome? But Jesus knows their unbelief, and he says it's the Gentiles who will receive him. Now this was too much for them. This was too much. And now we read their second response. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They are literally filled with wrath and they, dra- they drive Jesus out of town and corner him on the edge of a hill, wanting to throw him off the cliff. Simeon's prophecy was coming true. Now they're thinking of Deuteronomy 13, when such prophets, such dreamers, they should be killed for deceiving the people. But what's so interesting here is that it's the Sabbath. If they do this, this would not be a legal execution at all. But the all, look at what the all-powerful Jesus does here. This is amazing to me. He walked right through the crowd and went on his way. How did he do this? There's an angry crowd wanting to kill him. It was common when you're gonna stone somebody to throw them off the hill and take stones as big as a person's head and throw it at the person's chest. How does he escape this crowd? What's interesting again is Luke doesn't tell us. All we know is that he spoke no angry word. He just walked through the crowd. But the theological purpose is clear. Jesus had a a vocation to fulfill, and he was in complete control of fulfilling it. Jesus is the Messiah, the King, bringing the kingdom, the good news for the poor. And right after this, he goes to Capernaum and brings release to a man who's possessed by a demon. And all throughout the rest of the Gospel of Luke, we will see him fulfill this vocation. 
On this day, Jesus escapes death on a hill in his hometown. But this mission does eventually lead to his death on another hill called Calvary in the city of Jerusalem. Jesus is in complete control of his destiny. So in conclusion, we have seen that Jesus understands his vocation. He fully knew who he was and what he was called to do. He spoke with authority. He was in complete control of fulfilling it. He sees to the very depth of the human heart, and he is all-powerful. He can simply walk through that crowd. Now, all throughout the Gospels, there's a pattern. Jesus reveals who he is, and the listeners are called to respond to him. Here we see that the crowd in his hometown, Nazareth, has rejected him. Now, North Central, how will you respond? Jesus is king, bringing his kingdom, and he expects a response from you. Now, many of you have responded to Jesus. Maybe you responded when you were six years old or when you were 15, when you were 20. But Jesus calls us to continue to respond to him. This is not a one-time thing. We're called to talk, take up our cross daily and to follow him. Is Jesus your king? Is there an area of your life he is not king that you need to surrender to him? Jesus understood his vocation. Do you know that you share this same vocation? This is your mission. Are you on mission with Jesus for kingdom come right now? Or is he calling you to greater faithfulness to this mission? How will you respond today? Now, my prayer for myself and for our community is that we'll continue to be captivated by Jesus. He is our king and we are on mission with him. Now, I want to encourage you to come forward and respond to Jesus if you have time. Today's prayer and fasting, so I invite you to linger at the altar, pray, respond to him as your king bringing the kingdom. But I know that some of you have to go, so I will close in prayer for all of us, but I would invite you, that those that can, to come forward. But let's pray. Jesus, we stand in awe of you. You are king, you are our savior, our deliverer. You have brought release, freedom for the captive, the poor, and the blind. And Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to live our lives according to the example of your son. We surrender our lives to your kingship and ask that you would help us to stay on mission with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Come forward, respond to your Savior, but for the rest of you, go in peace.